With that, go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Matthew uh, this morning. We begin a new series that we've entitled uh, The Upside Down Kingdom, uh, looking at lessons learned from the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to begin a, uh, and this may scare some of you, a seven-month study of the three chapters that uh, uh, contain the Sermon on the Mount. You can find the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And uh, if you would turn there this morning, uh, we're going to be finding ourselves in an introduction. Introductions are tough. Uh, Number one, it is daunting for a preacher to preach sermons based on the greatest preacher of them all. Many have said that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached. Now, I know you guys have heard some good ones in your time here, but mine don't compare. I know you don't need to hear that, but they don't compare to the lesson that we are going to learn. And it is humbling to take what Jesus is teaching us as his people and to share it with you and to help glean some of the truths that will come from this. And as we embark on this journey, an introduction is necessary. We need to know a little bit about what's going on in the settings and times of Jesus' life. What, where was this happening in his life and ministry when he begins to share? Who are the people involved? And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first section of his sermon, the Beatitudes, as a whole today. And then with the time, and it's going to be limited, we're going to look at the first of the eight Beatitudes that God gives through his son, Jesus Christ. We're going to learn about what it means to be poor in spirit. And the way I want to do it is the title of my message is by doing it through a vantage point. Some years ago, I watched a movie by that title, and it was a movie that surrounded the events of an assassination attempt of a world leader and an explosion in a uh, big square uh, of people that were assembled to hear this world leader speak. But what was different about this movie compared to all the other movies that I had seen is that the first hour or so of the movie would replay the, seven se- the same seven minutes that started the movie. Except what would happen is is at the end of the seven minutes where the explosion would take place and chaos began to ensue, right when that would take place, they would rewind it back and they would do it from another person's vantage point. So they start with a newscaster and then they talk, uh, they do it from a spectator in the crowd and then the secret service agent. And they're telling the story and every time that they would rewind and go from a different vantage point, we would learn more and more about the story. My introduction today is a desire to look at the Sermon on the Mount from various vantage points and to look at them, uh, hopefully to see from different vantage points of who the listeners were, what Jesus was dealing with in the political context, within his environment of where he was at, what was Jesus trying to accomplish, and then bring it to the storyline of that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, because that is an absolute necessity. If we're going to get this series, we've got to get that first beatitude down. So with that, I'm going to have you stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to do it a little different, though. I was able to find a, a uh, spoken word video on the text that's before us, and we're going to see the first part of the Sermon on the Mount uh, before our eyes. So follow along in your Bibles as we hear the reading of God's Word. And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown great mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, lie about you, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Be excited, because great is your reward in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a cover. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you as we embark on this journey of looking at this sermon that your son preached, Lord. Glorify yourself through it. Glorify yourself through the teaching of it. Lord, that we would be a changed people because of how we encounter these words before us. Lord, you're going to turn us upside down through this series. And we recognize that. And Lord, I pray we prepare ourselves for the journey of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ, even when that means we have to live countercultural to that in the world. And so God, lead us, guide us, be our teacher this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So as we look at this series and this Sermon on the Mount, we, we begin, first of all, by taking the angle of getting a broad view of what is taking place. And, and in our outlines, I just simply put the syllabus that's going to guide the way. For some, uh, right away, you, you, you thought more of Tim's vocabulary. Syllabus is a big word. I remember hearing about a syllabus for the first time in, in college. And the professor brings out the sheet of paper and says, here's the syllabus for uh, the semester. Here are the, uh, the requirements for how you are uh, uh, going to pass the class. Here are the textbooks and the material that you are going to know and understand. And so when we look at the sermon, we need to begin to understand as a whole what Jesus is trying to accomplish, what Jesus is trying to get across in this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through seven. And so I want you to write down under that syllabus, Jesus gives us a theme. There's a theme, and it's the theme that we have taken as a series, and that is that uh, it is all about Jesus flipping our world upside down. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to say, if you think that you can live a normal life and be a Christian, if you think that you can live a life as a Christian and not anybody take notice in this world, uh, you've got another thing coming. I'm going to flip things upside down because the way I'm going to call you to live goes countercultural to the ways of the world. And so all throughout this series, what we think that is the norm, Jesus is going to say, well, that may be the norm for the world but not the norm for my people. And as a result of that, uh, we are going to be called light. We're going to be called salt. We're going to be called uh, those who are persecuted because we believe the way we do, because we act the way we do. People will revile us. People will judge us. And yet, the Bible tells us very clearly in this sermon that we will have built our foundations on the rock of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is going to turn us upside down over and over again. And at times, we're going to feel uneasy. It's not fun to be upside down, especially spiritually. 
And Jesus is going to do that over and over again. Now, he's a master speaker. He's a master at homiletics. And notice that there's the theme of being upside down. But notice this upside down theme is going to be seen in some topics. Now, the topic or the overall theme, John Stott says of the Sermon on the Mount, over and over again. This sermon, in this sermon, Jesus will tell his followers to be different. Different from, being those, different from those who are religious and irreligious. To those who are nominal churchgoers, to even the secular world. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So, how is he going to turn our kingdom upside down? How is he going to show us what his kingdom's all about? Notice in our text, and if you don't have a Bible this morning, you can find it in the Pew Bible at page 809 in your Pew Bible. But let me help you to see where we're going to be going. You see, we're going to see some upside down things. Number one, in our first eight weeks of the series, we're going to see an upside down attitude towards life. We're going to deal with the Beatitudes, these characteristics of the blessed life, these ways that God has called us to live as followers of his. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger for thirst uh, for righteousness, those who are merciful, the peacemakers, even those who are persecuted. All of these things, God says, in this, when our attitudes are like this, we will be blessed. And then in uh, verses 13 into chapter 6, we're going to learn about uh, upside-down actions, what it means to live according to Christ's kingdom, what it means to live differently, what it means to be salt and light, what it means to uh, submit our anger and our lust under the rule of Jesus Christ. It's through this rule of Christ's uh, lordship in our lives, we're going to look at our marriages differently. We're going to look at our thoughts differently. We're going to look at retaliation and judgment differently. And we're going to see that no longer is revenge an option in the Christian life. That giving, uh, not getting, is the goal for the Christian. So different than that of the world. And then in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 18, we're going to turn to what I call upside-down affections. This is where we're going to learn about our relationship with Jesus Christ and our calling to pray and to fast. Here we're going to learn what it means to pray. To pray as the Lord told us and taught us how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we could continue to go on, but we're going to learn what it means to pray in this time and that affection that we should have to be communicating with the God who loves us so very much. We're also going to learn about uh, some of the uh, lost art of fasting, uh, the, the goal of the believer to show his dependence or her dependence on God, even in the foregoing of a meal or some other uh, security, if you will. And then finally, we'll close and we'll finish this. Just so you know, sometime in the end of May is when we'll be finishing this study up. We'll be focusing on what I call upside-down aspirations. It is here that we are going to learn what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. We're going to learn what it means to not worry about the details of life and how to build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. You see, throughout these topics, Jesus is going to get down below the surface to the crux of the matter. 
these four topics that Jesus addresses is going to go to the very core of who we are as followers of Christ. Casual Christianity is going to be rebuked. Sunday-only Christianity will be reprimanded, and so will the playing games of a Christian charade. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount absolutely means business. And as a result of that, you and I would do well to hear it this morning. So with that as kind of our guide, where we're going to be going, let's notice now the setting. Let's get into God's Word. There's a setting that we need to see. What is going on? And we have to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, just a couple of verses before this. And we see that Jesus is in the early part of his earthly ministry. Jesus is 30 years of age at this point. Uh, Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin, John the Baptist. He has received the uh, acclaim and the affirmation of heaven that this is my son whom I am well pleased. God has put his seal of approval on him. And straight from the waters of the Jordan, it sure does seem that Jesus is thrusted out into the wilderness in chapter 4 of Matthew, where he will endure 40 days and 40 nights of temptation by the devil. He will find victory through the power of God's word, and he will uh, tell the devil to flee from him. And after that point, he then enters into his earthly ministry where he chooses the twelve. All of this is recorded in Matthew chapter 14. I'm 14, Matthew chapter 4. And as a result of that, we have this young man who has been in relative obscurity. Uh, He finds himself in a backwoods place called Nazareth. He's the son of a carpenter, and he is not known as anything more than just the Nazarene, the Galilean. Uh, He hangs around some fishermen who he's called to be his disciples. They have left their father's business, and they have followed Jesus. And so Jesus, this 30-year-old man, now has has attracted a crowd. Now, before we get too far, I did this in the first service, and we had someone... Uh, who, who around here finds himself at the age of 29, 30, 31? Do we have any 29, 30, 31? About tw- David, you're not 30. Okay? we have any, anyone close? Who's close here? Come on, how, how old are you, Tammy? 32. That's good. That's good. I wouldn't have thought a day over 26. Okay? To give you an idea, Jesus is a young guy. I'm 37. Seven years older than Jesus would have been in sharing this. And we need to understand that this isn't some old sage. This is a young guy that has just begun a ministry. Now, why would a crowd be so attracted to a guy from a backwater town uh, with relatively nominal parents in the sense of nothing great about them? Dad's a carpenter, mom relative uh, just kind of staying at home, seeing after the house and the raising of kids. What would cause people uh, to be so attracted to this guy? Notice what our text says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went, out, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So notice, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, And he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and 
from beyond the Jordan. The idea here is this is not a ministry uh, that is just sitting in the Fox River. This is bigger than a ministry of the Chicago land area. This is the whole Midwest. To give you an idea, Jesus has become famous in a short amount of time over a multi-state area, and he's done so without TV, without radio, without print media. He's done it all with the speaking of his voice and the miraculous signs that he had done. And so we see that these great crowds, when it says great crowds, literally means in the thousands. He has got an absolute entourage following him. And they're following him because he's done some pretty uh, amazing things within this setting. Now we need to notice a couple things that he's done. He's exercised demons. He's healed paralytics. That is, people who have been paralyzed and unable to walk for many for their entire lives. He's given hope to the homeless. He's, a, he's taking care of every disease and affliction. You name it, you bring it to Jesus, he was able uh, to heal it. Jesus is doing some amazing things. And as a result of that, great crowds began to follow him. Now notice what the text tells us. With regards to this crowds, we need to ask the question, who's in the crowd? Who are the people that are a part of this crowd hearing this sermon? And, and, and might we find ourselves in that first century listening as they did? And there are three types of people I want to pull out of the crowd this morning. Number one are the desperate. The desperate. These are the ones that have afflictions. These are the ones that are demon-possessed. These are the ones that are coming to Jesus totally hopeless. They've got nowhere else to turn. And they've heard about this Jesus. They don't know much about his theology. They don't know much about his political stances. All they know is that my buddy came to Jesus and my buddy was healed. And I've got this issue. And this issue drives me absolutely crazy. I am broken as a result of this issue of struggle or or pain. Jesus is going to take care of it. And Jesus loves that. There's nothing better for us as a people to come to Jesus absolutely desperate. And Jesus sees them, and Jesus always had a heart for people. When he saw the crowds in another place in Scripture, it says he saw the crowd was harassed and helpless, and he had compassion on them. Jesus loves the broken. Even though we marginalize the broken, even though we push them off to the sides, Jesus absolutely loves to embrace broken and faulty and frail people. And he embraces these. And he embraces them both young and old, of all ages, of all backgrounds. They are absolutely desperate. Now, some of you this morning are here today because you too are desperate. Maybe you've got a bad medical report. Maybe you find yourself in financial turmoil and struggle. Maybe your marriage is all out of whack. Maybe your priorities have fallen all by the wayside and what you used to build your life upon no longer works anymore. And you've heard that Jesus fixes things like this. And you've come, and it's great that you've come. And Jesus receives people that are desperate. But understand this, and please hear me out today. Just because you're desperate in your circumstances does not guarantee you'll be desperate for Christ. Just because you're desperate in your circumstances doesn't mean you will be desperate for Christ. We don't have to look very far just to the Gospel of Luke where ten lepers are healed by Jesus. Ten lepers lose this terrible disease. 
and you would think that their lives as a result would be changed. They've gone from being on the fringe and being unaccepted by the people around them to being fully accepted, to being made whole again. You would think that these 10 lepers would have come back to Jesus and said, we give our life to you. You're the best, you're the greatest, and only one would return even to say thank you. You see, some of us this morning are desperate for an answer, but not desperate for Jesus. We're desperate for some hope, for some help, but not for the king of the universe. And we need to be aware of that. We need to recognize that. And so understand that our desperation must lead us to the cross. It must lead us to Christ because he is the answer to the desperation we have. Notice the second group are what I'd like to call the detractors. The detractors. And these are people in the crowd that they didn't need to be healed. They were there to observe. They were there to listen. They were open to what Jesus was saying. But as soon as Jesus would talk about his way, they would begin to come up with all kinds of excuses and all kinds of uh, different ways that they could do it. Let me name some of the detractors for you. The first group's a well-known group. It's the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have been a part of this group. And the Pharisees were a group of people, when Jesus starts talking about happiness, the whole Sermon on the Mount is how you can be happy, not in a worldly sense, and we'll get to it in a moment, what it means to live the blessed life. And what the Pharisees said was happiness was found in living by the rules. If you live by the rules and you show yourself to be a holy person on the outside, even though on the inside you may not believe it all and may not want to do it, but if you stick to that duty, you will find happiness in God by following all the rules and doing everything the way that man tells us to and how to get to God. And so they listened to Jesus' message. And what would cause them a problem? Jesus would say the following. He would say, even if you were to obey with greater righteousness than all the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Pharisees, hey, 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 Jesus. We love that you're bringing people back to the kingdom. We love that you're getting people to start talking about morality. This is a good thing, Jesus. But wait a minute. We believe the Pharisees would say that you can be good enough to get to heaven. Just do everything the right way and you'll get there and everything will be fine. And Jesus says, even if you exceed the righteousness of all the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. The Pharisees would create an uproar. Holy cow, Jesus, that ain't right. We've got a different way. Notice the second group was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group that, that didn't like the Pharisees all that much at all. They were, uh, by, uh, at Jesus' time, uh, they were a group of people that were known for their youthful exuberance. Uh, they were a people who, who were more mellow than the stodgy and curmudgeon Pharisees. See, the Pharisees were your type A personalities. Everything's got to fit the box, Okay. You can't do anything outside of the box. Uh, the Sadducees, they threw out the box and the Pharisees with the box, okay? And the Sadducees said, all right, where you find blessing is just doing your own thing. So tolerance is great, the Sadducees would say. Bring more tolerance. Let everybody do their own thing. And, and we'll all just kind of hang out. It's kind of like that logo you see on the bumper sticker. Just coexist. All the different signals or uh, uh, symbols of the different religions. Let's just coexist. And what the Sadducees would say is, why can't we just all get along? You say you love God. You say you love God. Who cares if we're worshiping the same God or not? It really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, we just die. 
There's no resurrection. And as a little kid, I learned that that's why they were sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so these guys were an affront. They said, hey, let's take off all the rules and regulations. Uh, Let's just hang out. Let's say we love God, but really do we have to be held to anything? It really doesn't matter. So just try to stay out of everybody else's business and you'll be just fine. Here's the problem. Jesus says to the Sadducees, hey, you've heard it said adultery is wrong, but I tell you if you lust after a woman with your eyes, you've lusted in your heart. Wait a minute, the Sadducees say. I can't have evil thoughts. Even if I'm living okay and he's existing and, and she's existing and I'm not bothering them, Jesus says, hey, Sadducees, you need to understand and know you can't do anything on the inside that doesn't affect the outside. The Sadducees are going to struggle with this sermon. And then you have the Essenes. The Essenes. And the Essenes were a group of people that said, Pharisees, you're wrong. Sadducees, you're wrong. It isn't about the box uh, per se uh, in what's supposed to be in it or what's supposed to come out of it. What you're supposed to do is to build a box around yourself. You see, the Essenes were the type of people that would say, um, don't be around any unbelieving people, any uh, people that aren't God-fearing Jews. Stay away from them. And so what they would do is, if you weren't a God-fearing Jew, you didn't have any association with them. And the reason was, is how can you be pure when you're living in the world? And here's what Jesus says to that. Jesus says, you are the salt and light of the world. And the essence, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to build a colony somewhere else where everybody believes the same way and and our moral code is the same way and everything's going to be fine? Jesus says, no, while you're not to be uh, of the world, you are to be in the world. And you are to permeate the world and you are to shine light in that world and not cover it up, not, not holster yourself into some sort of cloister, but you are to let your light shine amongst men. The Essenes aren't going to like what Jesus has to say. Then there are the Zealots, my final group, the Zealots. And the Zealots say happiness is found in revolting against the government authority. And they got nothing nice to say about the Caesars. They got nothing nice to say about the Roman Empire. And they see Jesus coming. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom. And it's exciting. And and they're all fired up. And they're asking the question, Jesus, when does the revolt take place? When do we go after Rome? When do we establish once again that God is our king? God is our leader. And uh, the moral code that comes with it. When do we become a, a, a Christian or godly nation again? That's what the zealots are asking. And Jesus throws them for a loop when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Wait a minute, Jesus. We're here to fight. He had some zealots amongst his disciples. Remember, they took up their swords time and time again. It's time to go and take over. We're ready to die with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, brothers. We're going to be persecuted and we're going to be peacemakers. Who are you in that crowd? Are you one of those? There's, there's Essians in our group. There are Zealots in our group. There are Pharisees in our group. There are Sadducees in our group. This is a motley group of people that are following and listening to Jesus. One final group, my friends, is the disciples. Not only the 12, but those who followed Jesus. Now, here's what a disciple is. Very clearly, the disciple is a learner. And Jesus is going to teach them. And are they going to figure it out? Nope. There are going to be numerous times in Jesus' teaching, the, Pharisee, or the uh, disciples are going to say, this is hard teaching. Who can understand it? And people are going to leave. And the disciples are going to stay there. And even though they don't get it and haven't figured it all out yet, Jesus is going to say, are you going to go too? Is this too hard for you? 
And their response will be, yeah, it's hard. I don't get it. And, and it seems impossible. What you're talking about goes totally against what we know, Jesus. But here's what the disciples are going to say over and over again. You have the words of life. You have the words that are going to change me, make me new, make me who God wants me to be. And so here's the thing. As a disciple, we're going to be turned upside down as well. We're going to be challenged. And our response as a disciple isn't to have it all figured out. If you've got it all figured out, then you've ceased to be a disciple and you've become Christ. You become the teacher. But as a disciple, we are called to wrestle with the things of the Lord. And at the end of the day, say, You've got the words of life. Who else are we going to turn to? And so here's the crowd. Here's the group of people. Now notice very quickly, I know you guys are getting nervous here, okay? We've got then the uh, place. Where's the place? It says a mountain. It says a mountain. We don't know why he chooses a mountain. Some say it's acoustics. He's picked the side of a mountain so that he can be heard, and the acoustics on the side of a mountain are going to be better. Uh, He did this next to the sea of Galilee many times, and many believe that it helped with his public speaking uh, to be able to be heard without amplification. Uh, Others say that Jesus picked a mountain because God does his best work on mountains. You see, God is not a cornfield of Illinois kind of God. Okay, very little happens in the corn and soybean fields in the stories. God does a ton of stuff on mountains. This is the law of Moses. Comes down the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah and he has given a provision of a sacrifice, a picture of Jesus that was to come on Mount Moriah. We think of Mount Carmel where the prophets of Baal were destroyed by Elijah. We think about this mountain where this message is going on. Jesus is going to take some disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration where he's going to reveal his glory. We know that the Mount of Olives would be the place where he would, des- uh, would ascend. And we know one day at the second coming of Jesus Christ, he will descend on a mountain. So here's the thing. I don't know why he spoke on the mountain, but he sure does seem to like mountains. Okay? He likes mountains. And they seem to work well for him. So notice the mountain is the place. Notice the posture. He sat down. We just want to understand this a little bit more. Why in the world would he sit down? Number one, we need to understand he's not a, ra- a ranting preacher. He's not yelling and screaming. You can't yell and scream from a seated position. It's really hard to do. It doesn't sure, it doesn't look like he's shaking his fist. He is speaking in a very composed type of way, a way that uh, allows a hearer to clearly understand what he's trying to communicate. Another reason why the posture may have been is in rabbinical times, a rabbi would share his heart from a seated position. So, Here's what we know from first century history. Jesus has shared his heart to us as followers. Oh, how important it is for us to hear this. And so we have this process now that he teaches them. He's going to teach them. Now, the disciples had come. The people had followed him because of all the miracles and healings that had taken place. But I want to make something very clear this morning. While healings and signs and wonders may have their place within the Christian faith... They always, always, always in Jesus' ministry were secondary to the preaching and teaching of the word. Jesus taught them. And Jesus taught them. And I want you to know something. The show will always be built on signs and wonders. Disciples are created and maintained and grown by the steady diet of the word of God. And so Jesus teaches. And the reason why we here 
at Village Bible put such a focus on the teaching of God's word is because Jesus did. This is what he did. He taught people what it meant to be a follower of his. So there is the setting. Uh, It took a lot of time. Now let's quickly move to the first point that he has. Jesus has four points in a sermon, not three, not five, four. Four key points. And the first point of a sermon is the attitudes that you and I are called to have. And Jesus begins this sermon with the beatitude, characteristics that you and I as believers ought to have. And they're going to convict us because a lot of us aren't living this way right now. Many of us are choosing to go the way of the world instead of the way of Christ. And I want you to notice a couple things about these Beatitudes. They are characteristics that only Christians can live out. You cannot be an unbeliever and live out the Beatitudes. Here's why. You can't be poor in spirit and not be a believer. You cannot hunger and thirst for righteousness and say, well, I hunger and thirst for righteousness, but I don't want Jesus. You see, these are things that are for us, the believer. And while they may be a nice pattern of morality, they go deeper than the skin surface, if you will, of of morality. They go to the very crux and the very heart of who we are. This is for us. It is for us today as it was for the listeners who were hearing it for the first time and was being recorded. With each of these, we are called to be followers of Christ. Therefore, the Beatitudes cannot be a package deal. You can't, they have to be a package deal. They can't be picking a la carte. You know, I, I love a la carte things. I'll have a little of this and a little of that, but I don't want this. Keep that off my plate. And some of us will want to make these things a la carte. Sure, I can be poor in spirit, but I can't be merciful. Sure, I'm happy to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but a peacemaker, I'm unwilling to give up the fight. And some of us are going to want to pick and choose, just like the Ten Commandments. You can't pick Commandment 1, 5, and 9 and scrap the rest of them. They come together. In fact, we're going to learn they build one onto another. And so we've got to accept all these things, these Beatitudes, as a whole, not as a part. Finally, uh, these are, uh, thirdly, these are behaviors that flow from the right beliefs. Uh, you have to believe the right thing. And here's the belief. You will not live out the Beatitudes. As we study them, you will not live them out unless you fully recognize King Jesus is the one that told us to do these things. These cannot be pithy thoughts from a nice teacher. That won't work. It's either we're going to say King Jesus says, I must live and have an attitude like this, Or not. And if you don't think much of King Jesus, you're not going to think much of the Beatitudes. If you want to do what King Jesus says, then the Beatitudes are going to come a whole lot easier to you in your life if they flow from a right belief that Jesus is in charge and you're not. These Beatitudes finally are going to glorify God and they're going to grant blessing to us. What I mean by that is when we are living out these Beatitudes, we will become salt and light. And God wants us to be that. He's brought glory when we're salt and light in the world of darkness and the world of depravity around us. And so we're glorifying God. As we live out these Beatitudes, God is sitting there and saying, you're approved. You're approved by me because of your life and because of what you're doing. You long to serve me as your king. You long to do what I've called you to do, and because of that, I can't be prouder of what you are doing. We glorify God when we follow the Beatitudes. But notice, they bring blessing to us. They bring blessing to us. That word blessing, it can mean happy. 
But it comes very much deeper in that. It speaks about a joy that's not based on circumstances, but based on Christ. William Barclay said this, The world can win and lose its joy. A change in fortune, a collapse in health, the failure of a plan, the disappointment of an ambition, even the change in the weather can take away the fickle joy that the world gives. But the Christian has the serene and untouchable joy which comes from walking forever in the company and in the presence of God. The greatness of the Beatitudes is that they are not wistful glimpses of some future beauty, nor are they even golden promises of some future glory, but they are triumphant shouts of bliss for a permanent joy that nothing in this world can take away. You see, God desires for you and I, hear me out, to have an abundant life in Christ. He wants it for us. But to be able to do that, you and I have to buy into the prescription of a beatitude kind of life. And it begins, and let me close with this, it begins with the spirit that is required for the journey. So here we have, we've unveiled, we've started this sermon, and Jesus says, he opens his mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the thing. This is cut and dry. This is easy. This is something that we can understand in just the last couple minutes of a sermon. I'm going to let you go here in a minute. But I want you to understand, this is easy to get to. We don't have to explain ourselves on this. But I want to help you with it. Number one, we need to look at the poor in spirit and see some of the sad replicas that come along the way. You see, the world says, yeah, we're poor in spirit. Let me explain to you how we're poor in spirit. Number one, Jesus is not talking about material poverty. Write that down somewhere. This is not about material poverty. Jesus does not say, blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. We're all on equal ground before the cross. God isn't concerned so much about how much money you have as he is concerned about where you spend your money and how you spend your money. But that's not even the case here. This has nothing to do with material poverty or material wealth. Notice number two, it has nothing to do with false humility. Some of us right now, uh, we think we're humble. We're so humble, we're proud of it. And uh, we, we go around and, and just very, very humble and, oh, no, I don't deserve that acclaim. I don't deserve that affirmation. I don't deserve that award. Uh, you know, and you see it in Hollywood all the time, the most prideful people up there. And, uh, you know, the very essence of a humbling speech, I'd like to thank all the little people. Wait a minute, so that means you're a big person, and then you're thanking all the little people, okay? And when we do this a lot of times, this false humility where we, we pretend to be humble, and all the while we're thinking, I'm better than them. I'm more important than them. We look at people in dire straits and we say, well, I'm not in that place because they're lazy, and, and I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Jesus is going to say it has nothing to do with you, and it has to do with me. Notice finally, it is not an, infori- an inferiority complex. Some of you think little of yourselves, either because of abuse in the past or rejection, and you think you have little to offer the world. And you're like, finally, finally, Tim, you're, 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 you're rolling the ball up my alley. This is perfect. I don't think very much of myself, so I'm poor in spirit. No, you just have a self-esteem problem, okay? 
And I don't mean that to be a joke. I'm just saying that's not being poor in spirit. So if those are bad or, or sad replicas of the real deal, let's see what the real deal is. Write this down. Poor in spirit is simply this, an acknowledgement that we are bankrupt when it comes to our relationship with God. We are bankrupt when it comes to our relationship with God. That we are sinners in need of grace. Boy, that will change the way that we look at this world when we recognize we are a sinner. That we are broken and it is by God's grace that we have what we have. We will look at our brothers and sisters, not only here in our area, but across the world with a greater heart when we look at it through the lens of being poor in spirit. That we recognize we bring nothing to the table when it comes to God in our relationship with him. And so the only requirement for being poor in spirit is repentance. The only requirement is repentance. You and I need to stop thinking, and this is what we're going to get out of this series, you and I have to stop thinking that the world revolves around us. It doesn't. It doesn't revolve around us. It doesn't. Uh, it's not what people are going to do for you in this kingdom. God says you're going to be a part of my kingdom. It's about what you're going to do for others and what you're going to do for me. It's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about getting on our knees and saying, God, I can't do it without you. I'm a failure without you. I've got nothing without you. It's repenting of trying to live our lives dependent on ourselves instead of our Savior knowing we have nothing to offer. The language of this kind of heart is heard in, in this poem. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for rest. Foul to the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I'll die. If you have not come to a place where you have said that to Jesus, let me tell you something. You are not experiencing the kingdom of heaven. Because that's salvation. Salvation is we get on our knees and say, it's all about you. It's not about me. I've got nothing to give to you except my sin and my baggage and all my issues and all my struggles. Jesus, I got nothing but to give you is my garbage and you're going to give me grace. And if you have never experienced that, Today is the day you can. Today is the day, being poor in spirit, you can bow the knee and trust Christ as your Savior. And when you do that, God says, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Not only in a life to come, but in the life now. You experience his joy, his peace, his contentment. You'll experience the abundance of knowing you are a part of the family of God. And I would implore you, if you've never bowed the knee to Jesus, today is the day of salvation. So there's a roadmap. So let's close this thing out. I know I've had you guys here a little longer, and I appreciate your perseverance. But what's the roadmap? There are two things that you and I need to do. Whether we are a sinner for the first time experiencing grace or been a Christian for a long time, what does being poor in spirit mean? Number one, it is time for you and I to acknowledge our impoverished position. Acknowledge your impoverished position. You've got nothing. God has got everything. When was the last time you got on your knees as a follower of Jesus Christ and just thank God for all that he's given? Do you recognize, do I recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from above? As a father, do I recognize 
God, you've given me three beautiful boys, gifts to me, to show me your love and to show me how you love me and care for me and want to provide for me. Do I, do I see the relationship that I have with my wife as a gift that God has given? You know, when we start looking at our marriages that way, we're going to not fight as much because we're going to see our wives and our husbands as graces to us, gifts from God to show us what it is to live in community and intimacy with one another? Do you see the money in your pocket not as something that you get to decide what you get to do with it, but as a way to say, God, you have provided everything I need. Now how can I provide for those in need? It will change the way we do business in life when we understand that we are in need. And finally, we need to depend on God's plentiful provision. Have you basked in the greatness of God's grace? Oh, I would pray this week that you would get away just by yourself and just thank God that He meets every one of our needs. He ministers to us while we were still sinners. He demonstrated His love for us by dying on the cross, taking care of our need. And, and now what Jesus is saying is, I want you to act like me. I want you to live like me. I want you to talk like me. I want you to relate to people like I do. And I will tell you, when we understand how bad we were without Jesus and how great we have it now, it will compel us to live like him. And so this is the journey we get on. It's the journey we're going to be a part of. I pray this introduction has been of help to you. Let's go ahead and close our time in prayer. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and much has been talked about this morning as it is the way of introductions. And Lord, I pray that there would just be a couple things for each person to walk away from this morning. Lord, I pray that we would remember that it is by your grace that we have the ability to sit here and to hear your words being spoken. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your example. Thank you for your uh, deliverance uh, for us out of sin. And so, Lord, I pray that as followers of Jesus Christ, we would begin even today, even in our first acknowledgments and, and, and conversations as we leave this place, that we would be poor in spirit. We would be humble. We would recognize we are here because of you. We are here in spite of ourselves, and we have a great opportunity to look at people and respond to people differently because of what you've done in our lives. Oh, Lord, change us. Let us be a church that is poor in spirit so that we may, on a continual basis, continue to inherit the kingdom of God. We want it because you're offering it and you offer only good things. So Lord, we're going to strive. We're going to bask in your grace so that we can receive that inheritance and live for you. Now Lord, let you receive all the glory and honor for this. Allow us to now go in fellowship and enjoy the rest of your day for your glory and for your namesake. In Christ's name we pray all these things. And all God's people said, amen.